She'd been wheezing with an incipient cold in the night, and as she awoke on his approach, she'd glimpsed a terrible shiver and roll of his eyes, and then, too, was certain that he'd intentionally flipped the tray back onto himself as he fell so that she wouldn't be burned. She could not know at the time that a vessel had burst in his brain and had flooded him instantly with death, for she had run and fetched ice packs to press against the angry scalds on his shoulder and neck. Something was terribly wrong, but Benjamin had always taken a fastidious care with his physical person, and all she could think of was him believing that he might be marked forever. She knew what he would say to her now, having sold off the apartment and everything in it. You're even less of a sentimentalist than I am. That's not true, she would answer. You would have done exactly the same. Perhaps, sweetie, but who could be as thorough? Indeed, who? The act of selling June was used to, and so rather than hiring an estate service, she had done the job herself. She first sold the best pieces from the apartment and her antique shop through the auction houses, the rest of it in group lots to dealer acquaintances she knew around the city. Against her usual mode, she had not bothered to haggle, strangely delighting in the knowledge that her colleagues would do more than well with the pieces. One of them actually balked at paying what she proposed, saying that he couldn't take advantage of a dying woman, that there should be honor even among thieves. She told him he had better stop talking about honor or she'd re reconsider, and soon enough he relented, inquiring before he left about a late federal desk he'd long admired. She undersold that one to him, too. The overwhelming balance, like the non-rare books and records, the kitchen tools, the bath towels and bed linens, she bundled and gave to a junk dealer friend in the Bowery. For herself, she packed two small suitcases of clothes, a zippered tote of toiletries, a toothbrush, the most basic makeup. No hairbrush, certainly. The once rich black sheets of her tresses had finally grown back an inch, though white, then stopped, as if her body knew there was no point the old running shoes she was wearing. There was no longer any call for heels or even flats. These days, her feet were always too swollen anyway. From here on, she decided she would fit herself for constant movement, if nothing like speed. A certain fantasy did occur to her while her buyers perused the apartment. She entertained another scenario in which she would be assigning the items to a host of grown children, and then to a wider brood of nieces and nephews, each one receiving by special delivery a piece of art or furniture thoughtfully designated for him or her, an Aubusson tapestry for the graphic artist, a pair of oak barber's chair, chairs for the young attorney, a Dutch sideboard and silver service for the one who loved entertaining, and so on and so forth, the scenario played out to its logical denouement of a gathering in the dimmed bedroom, where the score or so of them would be arrayed about her with eyes shimmering brightly, but with none yet allowing themselves the release of tears in deference to the woman she was. But in truth, her sort, she knew, didn't inspire such assemblies. Maybe a man could get away with being hard all his life and at the last moment still be beseeched on his deathbed, but a woman would be judged on the strict balance of her conduct, if not held eternally on account for a soul-defining action. The reason why she and Benjamin had lived happily together was that she never felt him evaluating her demonstrations of devotion or love, even as he readily offered his own. He was simply appreciative of being with her, there was enough genuine joy between them, of course, and even some real silliness, 
They didn't mind playing the odd gentle prank on one another, like lacing the other's pillowcase with talcum powder, powder on April Fool's Day. Poof. But mainly, he was content with spending the few evening hours after his long patent attorney's day reading in the kitchen while they ate whatever she prepared or ordered in. Or if it was decent weather, taking a walk afterwards to Bryant Park, where they sat on a bench hand in hand and fed a hot pretzel to the pigeons. He never complained about her business or the extended buying trips abroad that were periodically required. He never forced her attention or conversation. He seemed to understand from the very beginning that the best nature of their union was its capacity for an equanimity not unlike the stillness that comes after lovemaking or some harrowing event, but which they could seemingly engender by mere proximity. To the world, they made an unusual couple, at least in appearance. Benjamin was a very short man, five foot three or four, depending on the shoes he was wearing, as well as being slight of build, with a narrow, fox-like face and a long, regal nose on which perched old-fashioned, gold-rimmed spectacles. He was balding on top, but never concerned about it, and he dressed elegantly, if somewhat severely, in his necessarily custom-made suits of dark navy and charcoal gray. More than once at the opera, at a cocktail party, strangers had asked if he had been a jockey in his youth, given his size and how fit he looked. And Benjamin had affably replied that indeed he had once known something of horses, which June knew was true, but not in any sporting sense. June herself was quite tall, a half-head taller than Benjamin. The pair of them further distinguished because she was Korean, and with how quiet they were and seemingly pleased to be by themselves, it was not surprising that they were, slightly, that they were a slightly odd picture to even those who knew them. They had few real friends, if any, sporadically socializing with Benjamin's colleague at firm parties and charity functions where they were expected. Neither June nor Benjamin ever wished to do any more, and in the evenings they would read or do work, and on free weekends drive to the cottage on the Delaware River. They never went on a vacation, and on their honeymoon Benjamin rented a suite at the Carlisle for a week, but only because the apartment was being spruced up and painted. The five years of being without him had gone by slowly for June, the time seeming to dilate not because she was lonely or lacking for activity or work, but from her sense that something else as acute was bound to happen, and which she was constantly awaiting. She missed him, of course, at times terribly, though if she were honest with herself, she would say the feeling at its worst was more like an anxiety than sadness, a web of wires twisting in on itself, funneling upwards from the gut to the neck to the throat. Sometimes she found herself laboring to breathe as if her airway had suddenly narrowed, and she couldn't help but see Benjamin's rigid figure again, his racked mouth, the hard pulses in his limbs. But the most awful aspect was how instantly he was gone. She knew he was dead even before she dialed 911, the incontrovertible finality of it somehow overwhelming her grief, such that she had not wept that morning or at the funeral two days later, his few relations glancing somewhat suspiciously at her during the service, and afterwards she even overheard someone saying that they are tough, those Orientals. Benjamin would not have cared at all about her non-display, been even a little pleased if he thought the other mourners had taken umbrage because of it. He had a low tolerance for sanctimony or righteousness. 
The only reason there was an observance at all was that he gave generously to a children's charity run by a nearby synagogue. The rabbi there had been alerted by Benjamin's aunt and so arranged everything with what June would soon learn was a ritual swiftness that in fact unsettled her even more. Benjamin himself often joked about a quick exit of dropping stone dead on the racquetball court or in a fancy French restaurant, my belly full of lobster and Shashan Montrachet, scenarios that were of course ludicrous as he didn't care in the least for such things. But he gave darker intimations too, as whenever there was a serious car accident or someone taken ill on the street, he couldn't help but practically halt in his tracks and look upon the scene with a helpless fixation that June could only dispel with a hard tug on his arm. During the funeral service, the handsome young rabbi who had met Benjamin perhaps twice praised his successful legal practice and generous giving to the needy and then spoke quite movingly at length for his love for life that was no doubt forged during youth by his experience in the death camps. This last notation naturally elicited a murmuring assent from the congregation and resoundingly cast the ceremony into a larger scale, but June felt like rising and telling them that she was quite sure that Benjamin Singer, in point of fact, had not loved life. He had loved the intricacies of his patent law work, surely, the careful parsing and accounting of the language of operations and processes. He had loved the small projects at their tiny summer cottage, in particular the constant scraping and painting and rebuttressing of the deck. He had certainly loved eating his favorite dish of boiled yellow potatoes with salt and sour cream. And then she had hoped that over the years of their marriage he had come, perhaps, to love her.